Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to The Laws of Style. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer and fashion law professor. And today, I'm joined by legendary fashion journalist, Bridget Foley. Bridget, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Doug. And for that oh, over-the-top introduction. You were the executive editor of really the, capital T-H-E, uh, fashion industry publication, Women's Wear Daily, for decades. Can you walk us through how you ascended to that position and how you started and what it was like in the 80s and 90s? You know, flashing back, I did not have a plan. I am not a planner. I had one other job out of school that where I was for, I think, 16 months. It was at a place called the California Apparel News. And then I heard of it opening at Women's Wear Daily. And I applied and I got it. My job was to cover, I was a market editor. My job was to cover junior sportswear and some ancillary markets that don't even exist anymore. Back then, there was something called weekend wear. There was a department store category called weekend wear. That was one of mine. I had jeans and casual pants. I had blouses and shirts. So I covered all, all of these things. And I um, mean, then it just sort of, you know, I, it was the kind of thing where WWD was a very open and sort of freewheeling place in the way you had your market, but then if you were asked to do something, you know, you, you did it, at least I did. My, I guess my, my path was to say yes, if I was asked to do something, to say yes. And I did, and then I became um, involved in W. W was at the time a sister publication to WWD. It was, it's very interesting because there is an exact corollary today to the way Mr. Fairchild started W, and that is on a business publication in front of wall. Like WWD is a, is a business publication, but so, and W launched as, it, it would be the, the free content that would be of interest to a broader, to a broader audience. Mr. Fairchild covered, um, W was launched before, well before I got there, but w, WWD always covered the arts. We covered, um, you know, we, we covered, there was a dance critic at one point. We covered theater, we covered movies. And Mr. Fairchild thought, you know what? Um, there's a consumer, there's a consumer audience for this. So it was, it was quite brilliant. I mean, the overhead was so low. He, um, he just spun off the content the, the, that, uh, that was not trade oriented. And with the photographers at the time, instead of just going out with black and white film, they'd be given a roll of color film to shoot the fashion. And that's really how W started. And so, um, but when I started, the market editors at WWD were mostly on W, on WWD. And then if, you know, someone saw a spark or had wanted you to do something, you'd be asked to do a story for W. And that's kind of how it started. And then I just, as I say, I always said yes. Then I wound up, you know, you know finding, finding a wonderful home. Well, in the 80s and 90s, I mean, you had, you had the traditional wholesale model. Retailers were stronger than ever. You had really the holy quartet of American designers, Ralph, Donna, Tommy, Calvin, uh, among others, all the ready-to-wear designers, and, and moving into the 90s, um, new emerging designers uh, from uh, American fashion. Uh, I guess, did you feel that the energy of those days was stronger uh, in American fashion? 
I was starting out, I was young at this moment. And so when you're new to a world, you're new to it, you're, you know, it, it's, of course, it's so exciting and it's so fresh and everything is possible. And so there was that, absolutely. There was also the parallel that, you know, as you say, Ralph, Donna, Calvin, Tommy, and then there was the ready to wear side, Oscar, Bill, Carolina, and they were the, the, the sort of the, the polar, the, the polarities of American fashion. And so, yes, it was really exciting. It was wonderful. But there was, you've got to remember, there was also another, a major ascendancy in the 90s. I, I sort of call the Proenza generation. That, that whole generation, that was much later. They started in, in the mid to late 90s, and that was really exciting. It was a major, major moment for American fashion. Everyone wanted, you know, everyone wanted American fashion. The, um, you know, Mark went to, Mark went to Vuitton, and Michael Kors went to Celine, and it was all, all so exciting and all these possibilities. And that was a whole new generation of people, that, that Proenza generation, sort of with, with all these new and exciting ideas, but they were rooted in, the wholesale model, and that has been challenging for them. That Absolutely. has been challenging for them. Yeah. And I think now American fashion has changed so much. It's, there are many, many directions now. And I think that um, it, 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 we are, I, I, mean, I mean, to say that we're in a state of, of, of evolution or change is, is, a, is a misnomer because fashion, that's what fashion does, fashion changes. So, you know, fashion, the look, the style, the, the, the trends change, but the industry itself changes and the structure of the industry changes. And right now we are in a figuring it out period in American fashion. And I think one of the things that we have figured out is that, you know, the major groups do dominate. There's no question. And everyone else has to find the place for the brand, how it fits in, how you relate to consumers. There are many, many options now. Now so many younger younger designers start, they don't have to be in New York, they can be anywhere, they go direct to consumer. And so that's an exciting happening. There are challenges with direct to consumer. I mean, how do you scale the business? How do you make that work for you? But, but so it, it's in a constant state of evolution. Well, so many directions to go now, but um, let, me, let me still be provocative. And, um, you know, in a sense, so, so I'm, I'm familiar with so many of those 90s and aughts brands, and, you know, my firm represents quite a few of them. You're absolutely right that they didn't have the decades that those big four that preceded them had to really get to that. There seems to be this earmark on a billion dollar brand, right? And that there you're kind of, you've made it to the island and you're somewhat safe. But look at Calvin Klein's business now. You know, look at look at the DKNY business. I mean, I don't know that that's really true. And certainly some of those 90s brands have really, really struggled. Um, but what, what I want to ask is, you know, centric somewhat to New York, because you were obviously, you know, reporting out of New York. The system was still one where you went to the tents, right? And mm -hmm. you watched the shows. And we've obviously had two years of that not really being the case for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. But even before that, there was a conversation in full throat about the relevance of New York Fashion Week. So I will ask the question, you know, um, and it's somewhat a, a, a nationalistic one. And I am not someone who's, who's fond of nationalism. But how do you feel about American designers not showing at New York Fashion Week or even within the U.S. at all? And do you think that that's diminished what New York Fashion Week is? I, I think that right now we're seeing a case where people are still deciding whether or not 
you know, to show at all. And, and it's a huge expense. And that's something that we can't forget. I think that of all the fashion weeks, but let's talk about New York. I think it's important if you want to have a fashion week at all, I think people have to show within that period to, to, to make people pay attention, to make people pay attention. I, I think that it's very, very important. And I think it's important. I, I, it became very, it's become very chic to go off calendar. And I think that that's come around again. Now people are realizing that it works for a while, even for the major brands, the off calendar thing seems to be on the wane because you can capture the, imagine, the imagination and the attention of people. And now it's not just capturing the in industry attention. Everybody wants this. Everybody wants you know the attention of all of the influencers and the people who are influenced by the influencers. And you can't do that if someone shows here and someone shows there. Yes, the mega brands doing the ama amazing itinerant shows, which are also under a little bit of you know scrutiny these days now for their environmental impact. But I think it's very important to have a, a central week. I think it's very, very important. It's certainly important if it is a goal, and I believe it is a stated goal of the CFDA to attract international press and retailers back here. That has become a challenge because so many American designers set up showrooms, uh, sales, sh sales showrooms in Paris during Paris Fashion Week. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think the more of an event it becomes, the better. I, I think that concentration is good. The rise of the digital tastemaker, uh, self-publishing fashion blogs, tweets as fashion editorial gospel. Uh, the industry of disseminating views and reviews on fashion has changed drastically uh, over the last 20 years. Good, bad, ugly, or uh, just change and, and not really worthy of comment? I think that there is a consumer base and it's, you know, a young-ish consumer base, although it will as this, this has now been the norm for a generation, so yeah. that will continue on. Um, they relate to influencers. And, you know, so I, I, what it does, it, it basically it does take the middleman out to, to a certain, um, that's a sexist term, I guess, the, 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 the middle press out to, um, to a certain degree. And the, the brands can speak directly to the consumers. The brands can speak through influencers. I think it's important to know when it is when, when the influencer is being paid or not. I think that's very, very important. But I think that if you, if, if I as a consumer find, you know, you compelling and I trust your taste and I trust what you're telling me, then that's a good thing. And it's provided that you are, that you are on, you know, on the up and up and, and I, that's not a bad thing. What I think is very interesting is, is the sort of the growth of the, the micro influencer that going, they're not all major. And some, some brands say that the, their sales are driven more strongly by micro influencers because there is that personal connection. And also they can afford to work with them more easily. But um, so I think that, I think that one, one element, it's, it's a whole, it's, I guess, no longer new media, but when something emerges, it doesn't necessarily replace, obviously magazines are very, very different than they used to be. And all print is very, very different. And traditional media is very different. And there, there's much more competition. But I think that I have found that with, um, and I, th I think that with consumers and certainly with design, younger designers, I think they, they want to speak to the, you know, to through influencers. They want to, you know, have that audience, but they also respect, you know, a more, uh, you know, a more established or perhaps a more, you know, historically rooted point of view. And I, I have found that. So I think that one does not preclude the other. 
you definitely um, have always had a good relationship with designers. How, mm-hmm. how were you able to kind of balance objective review to maintaining a good relationship? Because, you know, we both know designers. A lot of them are, are delicate, certainly when it comes to critique over their design. Doug, I think that most people, most, not all, in the industry understand the roles. Most designers, most CEOs understand, you know, the role of the news media, which is different than a magazine. I I mean, a magazine doesn't have to give a critique, and they understand the role of the critic. So for the, and I'm not saying there haven't been awkward moments, there have, and I'm not saying, and there have also been times when you know, someone never got over it, never got over a negative review. And I, you know, I always try to be, in, to be not unkind, you know, I, I mean, I, I really try to, to, to be objective and, but I think that that's it. Most people understand the role of the critic and the role we had at WWD. And at the end of the day, if everything's fabulous, then nothing's fabulous. Do you feel there are any elements of the way that we dress, uh, of apparel, of clothing, that are charged with with entitlement or legacy, or interestingly, access uh, to to maybe smoke filled rooms that that one otherwise wouldn't be able to to gain entry into. I mean, there is there is a superficial side to fashion, and and part of what we love about it is that there's there's the it bag. The it bag was. There was a period in the 90s when the it bag was it and everyone then everyone strove and strove and strove for the it bag which of course you cannot you know you cannot orchestrate it you cannot plan it it just happens those the it bags that emerged were, were, were organic and now there are still hot bags that emerged the biggest thing today sneakers the right sneakers so do i think i mean if if the question is is it right for sort of People who have who a very of limited means to to you know sink everything into a bag or a sneaker. Well, no, but but there, but fashion does have an aspirational element, and there are uh, there are entry points, and there are people who save up for for a great pair of sneakers or save up for a great bag, and that's part of what makes it all work. That's part of what makes you know what makes the you know what makes fashion fashion, and yeah. there are some people who only want to be only want to be timeless and everything and that's great and I think that we're thinking more and more but in terms of sustainability and um you know and and shopping one's own closet and things lasting that's very very important that's always been a part of the luxury world I mean you don't no one spends a fortune on a piece of clothing to throw it away in a season but I think that there are you know there are deep elements to fashion there are emotional elements to fashion and and there are superficial elements to fashion and they all sort of coalesce into into fashion with that capital F fashion that we talk about. Right, right. What about uh, ironic elements of that? Do you appreciate when a brand riffs perhaps on those elements of, of legacy or entitlement? Of yeah. course, there's irony. I mean, fashion, uh, irony is a huge part of fashion. You know, um, in a way, satire is sometimes a part of fashion. Uh, of course, and then taking things out of context, you know, re, you know, you know, redirecting a concept, redirecting the notion of preppy, redirecting, you know, lady, the, the look at, you know, geek chic of, of the 90s with Prada in her ugly prints. And, you know, that, that those things are, 
they're fun and, and they're interesting. And sometimes they're, you know, they're deadly serious. Sometimes the, the, the ironic statement is one that's that's deep and serious. And that's fine, too. I think it's all, you know, you are speaking to an audience. It will click with an audience or it won't. And sometimes things happen, you know, accidentally. A, a, a constituency that you don't, that a designer doesn't plan to embrace something will. And that gives it a whole new life. Well, relatedly, I think, I mean, to follow this thread, um, we're not too far from describing cultural appropriation. And um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that issue uh, for, for designers globally. This is a huge creative issue for designers. It's a conundrum for designers. For many, many years, many years, Western fashion, the Western fashion establishment considered the world its oyster and it could take from here, take from there, take from anywhere. It, it, it turns out that's inappropriate and that hurts people. Now, what's interesting about it is that generally designers did not pull, call from sources or from objects or from themes or cultural motifs that they found is interesting. It's usually because they find it, you know, they find it interesting, they find it compelling, beautiful, not like, you know, not like what, what, what I'm used to, but still we find out that, it, that it's hurtful to people, that it's hurtful to full cultures. And so it, it's a, it is a real dilemma because I think that many designers have, you know, have had their range of references limited and that, that's difficult. And so, and, and I think that many of them are, 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 they're still trying to negotiate and what is okay, what isn't okay. What, you know, how do you, you know, how do you make it work? I mean, I have seen shows not, you know, not a hundred years ago, but 15 years ago that absolutely could not be produced today. Absolutely. And there were some, they, some of them were sitting there, but everyone was in awe. They were beautiful, but it's just, you can't do that. And I think that there's so many things that we're realizing that are inappropriate. I, I guess it's a matter of now listening those voices were not listened to before. And people, th those, those voices, those uh, um, diverse voices feel more comfortable, the people feel more comfortable speaking out now. But there's also whether we want to listen or we originally, originally we wanted to listen and we were forced to listen, we are now listening and designers are now listening and this Western fashion establishment is now listening. And that didn't, I mean, it wasn't even an issue. It didn't even come up. Another thing that rarely came up in the fashion conversation that is now um, a big part of it is the, the wastefulness of the industry, whether that was driven by luxury br brands destroying perfectly good but out of season products or fast fashion purveyors producing very, very cheap items, which essentially didn't have much of a life but to satisfy an urge for fashion, a seasonal urge for fashion, and almost designed to be thrown away. Um, and rarely made from uh, fabrics, which themselves were readily biodegradable. Um, that is a big part of the conversation today. And even the notion of purchasing new items is a big part of the conversation today. Uh, how do you feel that has impacted? And we're in the early days of it. I mean, you really, it's, it's only designers like Stella McCartney that one might look to a decade of history acknowledging this. Um, how do you feel it's impacting designers who have to pivot, who have been around for decades and haven't paid attention to this? 
And then as part two, how do you think it's impacting uh, people coming out of school that may want to launch their own brands? Excuse me. Well, first about Stella. Stella has been one of, and perhaps even the most influential designer of this modern era. And when she, everyone in the, it's only been in the past couple of years that ready to wear designers have abandoned fur. When she was coming out of, you know, St. Martin's and, and then she was, was at Chloe and then she started her own company and waving the anti, the, the no fur banner, people were having none of it. I mean, she was not embraced at all. She yeah. had such metal and such guts to do that. And then, and then she was led the way with the, you know, trying to, to come up with environmentally sound practices for manufacturing. So it's really, really impressive what, um, what she's done. Now the, the, the industry at large and its individual players, it's the big groups and all, all the major companies and smaller companies are very, very, very much focused on being good corporate citizens. The major groups and major brands publish regularly publish, you know, their goals that, and the goals are, are highly quantifiable. So it's not just, you know, let's be nice to, to the world, to the globe, to the earth. Um, there is, you know, an essential dichotomy that this massive production is bad for the, for the environment and it is fashion's job to produce stuff. And that, that is, a, and I know these people are so well-intentioned and they want to just, some of the goals are to be, you know, carbon neutral by a particular date and to use zero waste. But there still is the reality that, you know, most people don't need more clothes and, and, we're, and it's our job to sell clothes. It, it's fashion's job to sell clothes and to sell things, you know? So, so it is, I, I think that it's, it's a dilemma. It's a dilemma. Fashion is a for-profit industry predicated upon uh, forced obsolescence. Uh, items of apparel, accessories, they, they don't functionally become obsolete usually before they fall out of fashion. And it is that element of marketing fashion that, that creates that obsolescence. Uh, which is a conundrum, really, for uh, slowing down the cycle of production uh, in the face of a lot of the wastefulness uh, of apparel and accessories on the planet. I think there's less and less of that now. And I, I, I but you're, you're, I mean, that is, you do have to make people want, want the new. But I do think that people are more, that the brands are more conscious now of, and, and as, at the luxury level, longevity has always been important. I mean, I, Chanel makes it seem so that it can be taken in or out two sizes, which is pretty fabulous. Yeah. You know, so, so that's, that's really great. I mean, but one, one of the things that does interest me too, though, is the fast fashion is overproduced very definitely. But there are also, and as you say, much of it with the intention that, oh, the kid goes out, I want a new top to go out this week and then I'll never wear it again or I'll wear it another time, whatever. That said, I think it's very easy for luxury brands to poo-poo fast fashion. You know, what, what is the, you know, what do the people in their stock room make an hour? What do the people on the selling floors make an hour? How much do you have to make 
to afford a luxury jacket that will last forever. So yeah. that's an issue that I don't think gets enough attention. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. And therefore the critique, you know, from many who can't afford it is, I'd love to be sustainable, but that's a, that's a high-class luxury problem that, you know, that I just can't afford to have. Well, it's true. I, I mean, that's very true. And when you talk about it's expensive to produce in this way, the research that goes into it, there's, there, there are so many reasons for those prices. But the reality is that those prices are for the very few. The other way to solve that issue of, of making too much is to, is to make less or make, make nothing at all, nothing new at all, and to simply control the cycle of one's own brand's production um, to the end of the, the logical end of the life of, of the garment or accessory. Uh, by that, I mean a, a model where items can be returned to the brand and really only to the brand. And that solves a major issue that luxury houses face of authenticity, um, or I should say not the luxury houses, but the resellers of authenticity. Uh, and, um, the brand sells it and sells it again and sells it again and each time refurbishes it and make sure that it is um, it is sound structurally and, and and will last. And in that way, you you provide a scale of price points because obviously a used item is not going to be as expensive as a new one. Uh, you solve the problem, as I said, of authenticity, uh, and um, you solve the, the the huge huge problem of environmental impact. What are your thoughts on that? And that's something now that's a whole problem with, with sort of tracking the provenance so that the, the original seller gets a cut as it goes down the line and all of that. That's a whole developing area, one of these many developing areas with technology that will become possible. So fashion has often, but I think more so, I think this is sped up, tended to categorize itself into almost these kind of you know, segments. This is bohemian and this mm -hmm. is preppy and this is chic office and this is do you feel that the consumer and um you you can speak to men and women although i think their habits might be slightly different in this regard um but that they're kind of inhabiting a role when they're drawn to a brand like that and when they wear that outfit quote unquote they kind of feel that now, because I got my Ralph Lauren denim on and the big belt buckle, I'm a cowboy. Well, absolutely. But that's one of the wonderful things about fashion. It allows us to play roles or to explore different parts of ourselves or to express different parts of ourselves. Uh, we don't feel the way the same way every single day. Why should we dress the same way every single day? But it, you might find something that, you know, that really takes me out of my comfort zone and want to explore it, want to explore it. So that, that, that's what clothes do. We, uh, we do send, you know, it's a message. Every, everything you put on is a message. And I think that, you know, you can do something, you could be all buttoned up one day and then have something sort of a, you know, whimsical thing on the next. Yeah. And, I, and, and absolutely, I, I think that for those who, who really work it, that's what fashion does. Do you think that, I'll, I'll call it kit dressing or, or granimal dressing, um, if, if people remember that, um, all from a current fashion brand is, um, is some evidence of style? Or do you find that sampling from 
high, low, uh, or all high or all low, or some use and some new is the epitome style. I think the most compelling way to dress, the most compelling people we see on the street are people who put something together on their own. They may be flaunting a major piece from a major brand, but when you wear it your own way, that's, that's sort of, that, that's what's interesting. That's what's interesting. I mean, now, if you see someone wear something over the top, head to toe, and I can't say I have very, very often, that's interesting in its own way. That, that's funny, that's amusing. But, I, but when people really take a great coat and put it with something else and, and mix it with an unlikely shoe or boot or whatever, that's exciting. And that's what, that's the, one of the, that's, fashion allows us to be creative on our, to, to express our own creativity. And that's really important. Your features and profiles, um, always engaging, clear, concise. Is there some muse as a consumer that you are writing for? I mean, in the same way that designers have their muses, do you as, uh, as a writer have some perspective that uh, you are either speaking to or speaking from? It depends upon the vehicle. When I was writing for WWD, I was writing primarily to an industry audience. That was my target audience. Uh, mm -hmm. Other people read WWD, but that's the, the target audience you assume informed, knows a great deal about the industry at large and probably about the subject. Not always, because sometimes you're writing about a new designer or you're expressing an opinion that, that's new, but, but you assume that there's a knowledge there. So that's, um, that's my, my baseline. And as I started writing for consumer publications, now, I shouldn't say started because I long ago wrote for W and that was also you know, a consumer publication. I assume a level of knowledge and intelligence on the part of the reader. You know, you assume that people are coming to this publication, this title, because they are interested and they have some level of knowledge. At the same time, you can't overassume. I think that the, the best example I can give of that, the best example I can give of that is not necessarily um, writing because most of the publications I've written for have not been targeting kids. I'm not saying kids don't read them, but they are. I did um, an interview with Josh Shulman, who recently started, became CEO of Michael Kors, and is going to take over as CEO of the whole group in September. And it was at SCAD, the Savannah College of Art and Design. Josh has a remarkable resume, and he was, as a kid, fascinated with, with um, retail. I mean, he like square footage and, and dollars per square foot when he was 10. That's an aside, he's just so interesting. But he was at Gucci as a young guy when the whole breakup happened between Tom and Domenico and Gucci group that became caring. Mm -hmm. And so we we're talking about that as two people who, well, one who was there at the company and one who was an observer and a you know, professional observer. And I said, wait a minute, we've got to give some background. These are kids who it was quite a few years ago but were either infants or not born yet when this happened so you have to you, you, you have to um know who to whom you are are speaking and that's i think that's true if you're in this kind of a situation if you're in a, you know on a stage or if you're if you're writing so it really depends upon the the, the vehicle yeah well you and i have discussed off the air uh and at length the the issue of eponymous brand founders, uh, 
the designer being disassociated from the brand itself. And uh, it's a bit of a hobby horse legal topic for me as well. Um, you know, Halston, Joseph Aboud, Jill Sander, Dorit Chung, Donna Karen, Kate Spade, the, the, the list goes on and on and on. Um, but for our listeners, what are your thoughts about it? That's one of the, I, one of the most fraught aspects of fashion, I think, when people, to grow the company, you need investment. As an investor, you want a piece, and usually that piece winds up being more than 50, it winds up being at least 51%, and designers losing their names. It's, it's such, and it's funny, that has not changed through, through generations. You're right. I mean, it hasn't changed from Halston to Simon Spur, um, but let me just play devil's advocate from the investor perspective. I mean, the risks associated with investing in an eponymous brand are, are certainly higher than a brand that, that doesn't bear the name of its designer, at least as long as that designer is alive. Um, I, I will simply point to John Galliano. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite sure that the house of Christian Dior, which owns that brand name and bought it uh, before his his Paris rant, um, wished that it didn't. Uh, so what do you think about that? It is huge. I, I would say that the person, the major fall from grace moment, there's been one that I can think of and um, the John Galliano moment. And I think that John has worked so hard to come back from that. And I think he has what he's doing at, uh, at Margella is amazing. But I, I, so I don't think that's probably a primary risk that investors think about. Anything is possible, anything is possible. But there are many, many risks. I, I think that um, years ago, years ago, I was on a panel with young designers and, and, and a, a fashion industry lawyer. And she said that she thinks one of the biggest mistakes people make is to sell the name too early should everyone wants to not only sell the name too early but hang the shingle too early she was only advising to go work for other people but if you want to work for yourself don't use your own name initially which i thought was really a brilliant idea indeed concur completely i mean let me just give some thought to this uh biz vim um off-white acne uh even Purcell or, or Rolex, those are all not eponymous brands and they all function quite well uh, as brand signifiers. Um, so there, there is a way around it. And, um, you know, it avoids the, the Sophie's choice of having to accept investment or the outright sale of a company that holds the trademark that is not only your name, but, but your family's name. Uh, yes, and you can still, uh, you know, so I thought that was a really, really good advice. It's, it's so fraught. I mean, it is so, so, so hard to be successful in fashion today. It is so, so, so hard to be independent in fashion. So it, it's just it's so few people have done it. And um, for the long term, I mean, to stay, to stay independent for the long term. And it's very, very fraught. And I do understand. I mean, I, I guess if I were, you know, I tend to side with the designers in these cases. But if I were an investor, and I'm giving you all my money and I don't like what's going on, I would probably stick my nose in it. What do you think drives this choice to name the brand after oneself? I mean, is it, is it ego? Is it just momentum? It's been done so many times before, or is it some element of, of signifying authenticity? 
because I think that it, it's almost a default thing. I'm, I'm coming out of school or not, or I've worked behind the scenes for X number of years. I'm going to um, launch my own brand. You don't, unless someone sits down and tells you this might not be the best idea, you don't think of it. If I'm, if I'm going into business, of course it would be Bridget Foley. What is it supposed to be, you know, Molly Jones? So I think you just don't think that way. Yeah. You know, and yet there's, there, is, there is one designer who, no, two if you include Stella, but one designer who was famous in a major way for another label when starting his own company, and that's Tom Ford. Yeah. But because I mean, most people start much younger. Tom Ford, you know, made his name somewhere else. But um, but I think that it's not. I don't think it's an arrogance. I just think it's it's by default. Well, this this is why, and it's not about sales of my casebook. But this is why I am an advocate for uh, fashion law, at least in part, to be taught not only at law schools uh, but at design schools. I mean, FIT, Parsons, Central Saint Martins, they should have a class or two on some of these elements and, and certainly uh, the conundrum of the eponymous brand uh, for their students coming out of school because many of them ultimately do go into business. Do you know, absolutely, years ago, I mean, I, the schools have really come to um, teaching a little bit, teaching business in the fashion schools, but fashion law would be a real, it should be a required course, you're right. Which designers are you captivated by right now? And why? I think the designer who's been driving fashion to a large degree for some time right now is Demna at Balenciaga. And what's fascinating about it is that, I mean, everyone swooned over his couture collection in July, been there for quite a while. And many of his motifs have been carried through and he is just fascinating people. The, the you know, the, the um, abundance, the, the, that sort of fusion of, sometimes a dark impression with the couture and what he did in the couture was so amazing that that's really quite quite captivating because it's you know it's bold it, it was so bold but it's also remains bold even though many of the shapes he revisits and we know what his aesthetic is it's 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 been so 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 directional another one is Pier Paolo Pichelli at um at Valentino now Pier Paolo is he's changing a little bit um, I think, and, and sort of scaling back the grandeur. And, um, but what he has done there is so absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. He wasn't sort of aspiring to trends. It's just, but, but he did, he impacted the, the, well, certainly evening wear so, so much with all of his grand volumes and, and the color sense has been remarkable. And now he's sort of adapting that to a more approachable look. But, but that's been another sort of lasting, you know, lasting impact. Um, then there are some of the younger ones, um, somebody like Christopher John Rogers, who I think is one of the, you know, most, um, well, one of the most exciting young designers. He has, I, he's, he's got, I think, everything going for him in that he's really talented, he's charming, he's fun, and he has an innate love of fashion that I think comes through in every single outfit, not just on the runway. When I look at every, every picture on Instagram, there looks, you just see that joy and passion. And I think that's really, really great. The, um, if I'm not I'm sure what, you, what, your, what your verb was, was it captivating or who, who's moving fashion or whatever, Stella remains fascinating to me because you know, sort of stick to your gun, Stella. She has really, really, really not, not only driven a conversation. I don't know whether she's been so influential that 
or that just that she was so far ahead of her time and, and, and the time has come around to her and not just designers, but what she has done is, is amazing. Well, and as a lawyer for the brand, um, you know, I, I strive to be more than just a hired gun. I, I, I hope that I am a real believer in what the brand uh, stands for and stands behind. So I, it, it is very heartening to hear you say that because I know that Stella has put in the hard work and, and has taken positions that while potentially popular now, uh, certainly weren't a decade ago. That is an understatement. When, when Stella came into the, now she's beloved. When Stella came into the industry, she was, you know, an upstart with a famous dad whom people did not want to hear about, don't you tell me your thoughts on fur because I'm not interested. Oh no, people were not welcoming. I mean, there, there were many levels at which people were not welcoming. Fascinated, yes, welcoming, no. Who else has had that kind of impact, um, whether on the planet or society, um, that you can think of? Christian Siriano, with the whole body diversity thing and body inclusivity. Yeah. There are so many ways in which, I mean, you see size diversity now on every single runway. He was there, he was the Stella of that. He mm -hmm. was there when nobody else was, you know, was, was gay. There are so many ways to be directional and innovative and, and impact the industry. It's a testament to the industry and its overall reach that designers and apparel fashion has an impact, not just on, on our self-expression and, and our psyche perhaps, but, but cultural norms um, and, and the planet at large. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it is, it is an industry that touches almost everyone, yeah. almost everyone. To quote the late great Carrie Donovan, well, my dear, you have to get dressed. And therefore, on some level, it touches us all. On exemplars of style or, or fashion icons, if you will, uh, some of them for you. You know, I've never been a celebrity person per se. They're not, that's, there are not many celebrities that I really respect, but I've never been that. I've always been more sort of what I love first and foremost about fashion is the clothes and the creative work and all of that. But when I was younger, and um, certainly aging myself here, but when I was younger, I, my favorite, absolutely. Ally McGraw and Karen Graham, love them. And Karen Graham was, was my favorite model of the time. And Ally McGraw, I still think she is just so fabulous and has such style. And then there were, I wanna say D Daisy Buchanan, but really more Jordan Baker. I love everything about the 20s. And so, so sort, of, sort of, a, of a not real person, those ladies. Everyone views fashion as being such a glamorous industry. Do you agree with that statement? What are some of your most surreal moments in the industry? Do you know the fashion surrealism takes many forms. You can be very you know, small and personal and then registering, ex expanding to global events. I once, as a young journalist, I do not remember the context of this. I do not remember the story I wrote. I was not a celebrity reporter. I found up being in a car with Luciana Pavarotti, just the two of us and the driver. And I, and I think, oh my God, I'm in a car with Luciana Pavarotti. And it was very, it wasn't like Luciana Pavarotti offstage, at least at this moment, was like a regular guy. He was Luciano Pavarotti. And I was just, wow, what am I doing here? 
Um, another one, um, well, th there are certain surreal, there's a certain surreal level of entree that you have. A few years ago, Ralph Lauren did a show in his garage. And, you know, Ralph, there are garages and there are garages. And so to see Ralph's, and I'm not a car person, but to see Ralph's cars, to see the $40 million Bugatti, it was incredible. It was really incredible. Then on the runway, probably there, there have been so many incredible runway shows, but one of definitely one of the most surreal. Fall, I'm bad, fall uh, 2002, Alexander McQueen at the Conciergerie, which I had never been there before. And, and um, I had I'd been going to Paris quite some time at that point, but I'd never been to the Conciergerie, which is the prison in which Marie Antoinette was, was held before she went out to Place Vendôme to meet her destiny. And um, so that alone, going to that amazing, you know, citadel of history, of dark history, was a, a huge deal. And we get in there and up on one of the upper level, you see there are these cages with wolves. And then the show starts and, and the, the, there's not a raised runway. It's just the seats, as I recall, I think they may have been circular, but maybe not, but, but, but they're on the floor. So many shows are today, but this is a long time ago. There was not a raised runway and out comes, it was Little Purple Riding Hood. It, well, the whole show wasn't Red Riding Hood, but this was a take and there, out comes this girl in a purple, a lavender cape with a, a wolf on a leash. And we are all, not too many feet from the wolf. It was so stunning and I think it would never ever happen today. There are many shows that I have seen that would not happen today because of elements of cultural appropriation or themes that were perhaps in politics, but this was this was a wolf strolling, you know, a few feet from everybody. And it it was stunning. There were wolves up up in in the um behind the cage in cages as well. But it was so stunning and it's just we were all in awe, but at the same time, we we're just it's then taking our notes and whatever. And it, it, I mean, that was remarkable. And I, years later, I went to um, uh, my daughter and I did a little touristy uh, Paris trip, and I and I walked in there, and I thought I, I had I walked in. I, I was the first time I'd been there as a tourist, and I said to her, you know, it, it was not crowded; it was practically empty. And then you so you do, you do think about it, in my mind in, in cases like that goes as opposed to a more you know sort of as opposed to perhaps you know, a great museum or a church when something like this and it's empty. So I'm thinking of Marie Antoinette and what was her life like and whatever that I thought, but I am the only person in this place right now who had this very, very, very singular experience that was shared by a few hundred other people, a one shot deal that will never happen again. There are things that was a surreal, a surreal experience. It yeah. really, and I mean, I, everybody who was there will remember it always. Yeah. And it's actually quite stunning that it was able to go on. It, it was remarkable. Um, the most surreal and sadly very, very real episode was 9-11. 9-11 occurred during the fashion collections. And during fashion collections, everyone in fashion is just completely one track mind. That's it. Every, every focus is on that. The night before, on September 10th, was the Mark Jacobs show. Mark had a show on the West Side Highway in a big space. And then at the end of the show, the doors opened up and there was this huge party. And I remember this bower of flowers and this huge party that went on. I mean, I was on deadline, so I was never, never staying too late, but it went on very late from what I understand. And it was remarkable. It was this huge bacchanal. And then the next day I was going down Fifth Avenue in a taxi to go to the, um, to go to the shows. And there was, I didn't see the impact, but there was the smoke. And 
and the driver, the cab driver and I were, were stunned. And when I got out of the cab, this woman said a plane flew into the building. It was so stunning. And it was such a, a reversal and, and being at, you know, a news title, WWD covers news. So we all were then swift like this going from show, you know, from show mode and covering the shows and, you know, fun, great collection, fun party to, oh my God, we are now covering this, this tragedy and this, this event that will go down in history. And, and, and so it was turning on a dime like that. And everyone in the industry who was there will remember, will, will forever associate it with the fashion collections. It changed, it, it, it changed the way, every, the way what, you know, what we were all going to see. Obviously, New York Fashion Week came to a halt. Would we go to Europe? Would we not go to Europe? And it was just, and, and in my office, we were suddenly, the office at the time was on 34th Street, between 5th and 6th, right across from what suddenly became the tallest building in New York again. So that was unsettling too. And we could leave because we had to cover it. Well, somewhat nearing the end of our time and, and feeling a little nostalgic. I mean, I, um, you know, as a parenthetical, I was, I was actually in Paris over 9-11, which was an odd place to be uh, as, as someone who's lived in New York for, for going on four decades now. Um, you know, it's the only time I can recall being there that I didn't want to be there and I wanted to be somewhere else. Um, but what other New York moments um, have you had uh, related to fashion that, uh, that, that undoubtedly are spectacular. Do you know what I loved, love, love this summer? Was it the summer? When, when Lady Gaga was doing her, her street style thing when she was in New York for the right. concert with, um, with Tony Bennett. Yeah. And every day she emerged from the hotel in one more over-the-top outfit than another. I love to see that kind of emergence because that kind of singularity. She is such a movie star in a way when movie stars don't don't dress like that, don't present like that anymore, you know. And so that that kind of over that that kind of big personality projected through fashion, I really love. Yes, Lady Gaga is is what I would describe as a three hundred and sixty degree star. I mean, she has uh, the acting chops, which she has recently shown, but also dancing, singing and songwriting, um, and importantly, a very astute um, ability to present herself uh, through fashion in exciting and engaging ways for her fans. Uh, I know several designers that she has worked with very closely. Uh, she respects the design process uh, as, as herself a creative. I think that, I mean, she is a movie star now, but musicians, pop stars, have we give them more leeway than we give to actresses to people who started as actresses in a way yeah. there's no there's you know there there's lady gaga there's cardi b there's no actress who's out there dressing like that on a daily basis that's that's an interesting point do you think it stems from a legacy of of music on stage as being much more presentational uh and flamboyant uh, you know, I think of 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 rock and roll and hip hop and and pop certainly as as largely outward facing. The the you know what goes on on stage is as important as as the music that you hear. Do you think that's part of it? I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it, and I think that perhaps we maybe we look at maybe actors present as more sort of ordinary people when they're off when they're not on screen. Yeah. 
they say, or maybe they, they try, they aspire to that more, or maybe we project that on them. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Oh, no, you're probably right. So there has been the traditional dichotomy between men's and women's fashion. Uh, but over the last decade, we've really seen a lot of unisex or brands without picking a specific lane there mm -hmm. uh, emerge. And despite the issues that there may be with sizing or not, uh, some of that apparel, you know, has really gained some commercial traction. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that is a bit of just a fashion fad or is that with us to stay and maybe overall the future? I think it's with us to stay. In terms of being a broad future, I think that's well into the future. As we get increasingly casual and day-to-day, -day, I don't know how we can get much more casual, but sweats, hoodies, t-shirts, unisex, we have not yet seen men on a broad scale embrace leggings. So that's the other standard of that, that casual. I, I think that in terms of the genderless dressing, it's, I think it will be a while before vast numbers of men, the majority of men feel as comfortable in a skirt as the majority of women feel in a pair of trousers. Mm -hmm. we're, we're moving there and some men do, but those numbers are, those numbers are still not equal. It's, it's certainly one of those areas that's commercially challenging. Um, you know, we have a retail system that's built up around categories. There's a menswear buyer, there's a womenswear buyer. And I don't think um, that currently there is what would be called a unisex buyer. So I'm not sure which lane uh, those purchases for wholesale accounts at least would slot into. But that's all, that, that is sort of a matter of, you know, inclusion and, and, and choice. It, it, this becomes a choice and as more, more people, and again, I think it's much more the case of men becoming comfortable in, clo in, in clothes and garments and concepts we traditionally associate with women, as opposed to the other way around, because women have been wearing men's derived clothes and men's clothes for, for, for a long, long time. Well, so collaborations, I mean, the pace of collaborations has certainly increased They've been with us forever. They perhaps weren't weren't called collabs, but um, but they have been around. But what what are your thoughts about collaborations, and, and in particular when maybe a, a, a low price point brand collaborates with a high high end luxury brand? Um, do you think that that's confusing for consumers, or do you think it gives uh, the luxury brand some access to to maybe its consumer, um, you know, in five to ten years? I, I think it's that. I also think that more often it's the big brand, the big powerful money brand wanting the reflected glory of cool that comes with linking with a small, cool, forward thinking brand. Yeah. Um, and I think it's great. It, it, it brings something different to the party. It brings something new. It, um, it's exciting and it's fun and it's, and, and it's become an anticipatory thing now and, and everyone has to get done on the act. What I think is the difficulty in it, many smaller brands, emerging designers, when they achieve a certain level of, you know, a certain level of um, notoriety, and perhaps the business isn't, isn't at the same level as their reputation, the notoriety, they have that cool factor. It's not a business plan because the big brands will always want the cool connection. And once the, you know, once the cool factor fades, you still have a business to support and push forward 
and the big money brands will be on to the, the next cool guys. So I think that's a bit of a, of a problem that it, it can be, it, it's, it cannot be anyone's business plan, yeah. especially on the small side. Well, Bridget, we are out of time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And any last words to our listeners, whether shout outs to nonprofits you work with or um, you know, just final parting thoughts? This, just thank you so much for having me. This is so delightful. And it's, you know, I hope that listeners really just enjoy fashion because that's what, it, that's what we're supposed to do with it. It's, this is a tough world and fashion can bring us a little joy. Godspeed. Well said. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. Bye now. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in. And stay stylish.